I'm Elena Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move, the podcast that kicks old stereotypes to the curb. Come meet these creative, outrageous, authentic, adventurous, irreverent, and powerful disruptors and influencers. Grandmothers, from the living room to the courtroom, making powerful contributions in every walk of life. We know them most intimately as loving caregivers, the older women in our lives with a thousand stories about their grandchildren and pictures in their purses. In this podcast, you'll come to know even more about our grandmothers. They are galvanized, determined, and are guaranteed to get you thinking. What drives them? What are they up to? What is the potential of grandmother power, and how is it changing the world? Grandmothers are on the move. You don't want to be left behind. Hi, it's Ilana. Welcome back to Grandmothers on the Move. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Linda Freed, who's the Dean of the Mailman School of Public Health since 2008. She's a public health leader in the fields of epidemiology and geriatrics. I'm reading from a biography that's pages and pages long, so I'm not doing you justice, Dr. Freed, but she has dedicated her career to the science of healthy aging and defining how to transition to a world where greater longevity benefits people of all ages. She's an internationally renowned scientist, has done extraordinarily important and defining work on frailty as a clinical syndrome and illuminating both its causes and potential for prevention uh, to optimize health for older people. Her scientific discoveries have certainly transformed medical care and public health globally. Uh, I also wanted to mention that you had founded the Johns Hopkins Center on Aging and Health, extraordinarily important piece of work, and directed the Division of Geriatric Medicine and Gerontology and the Program in Epidemiology and Biostatics of Aging. The list goes on and on. The thing I loved most in your bio, which you didn't send me, I looked it up. The thing I loved most was that you were named by the U.S. Congress as a living legend in medicine. And I thought, am I really up for an interview with a living legend (laughs) in anything, let alone medicine, something? I know nothing about <laughs> most intimate, uh, but it's wonderful to have you, uh, Dr. Freed. Welcome to Grandmothers on the Moon. Thank you. I'm I'm really delighted to talk with you. Most of the interviews that I'm doing are with grandmothers who are engaged in all sorts of vital work, and I thought it would be incredibly interesting for those who are listening to know about the kind of work that you're doing, which when I read about it, and my understanding will be rudimentary at best, one of the things that fascinated and engaged me was that here was someone who was dealing with aging and geriatrics, something that usually suggests a kind of diminishment of the human condition. And yet you seem to be approaching it in the most buoyant of ways, without it seemed to me subscribing to this desperate need for everyone to be youthful in our Mm -hmm. culture. Um, Well, thank you for that very gracious introduction. And I'm delighted to think about your question with you. I was recruited into geriatric medicine as a young physician, and I wasn't planning to do it. But somebody I deeply admired was a leader in this very young field. And he tried to persuade me that I should go back and get retrained to do this after years of training. And I wasn't planning to do it, but I looked at the data and it took my breath away. It was the mid-1980s. AIDS was, you know, fully swamping the world. 
But I looked at the data and I realized that what we had done as a society in the West and Japan was to have really wisely invested in human health and development to the point that we had done the unprecedented and added 30 years to human life expectancy. That's never happened in the history of the world. And when I looked at that, it took my breath away. And I thought, oh my God, we actually have added a whole new stage of human life, but we haven't designed for it. And the next day I changed my career. I got (laughs) captivated by that question. And then over the subsequent years, I took care of a lot of older patients. And what I recurrently saw was people who were coming to the doctor, honestly, because they were feeling sick, because they had no reason to get up in the morning. And I started to learn about what evidence there was, and it became very clear to me that, in fact, at whatever age you are, including at the oldest ages, if you have no reason to get up in the morning, if you have no opportunity for productivity and engagement on things that you think are meaningful and have purpose, if you don't have structure in your life, then people do get sick and they actually die from that. And so I used to actually write prescriptions for my patients to go out and find something they cared about and do it and report back to me. And what I learned from my patients was that nine times out of 10, they couldn't find any roles that really used their immense capabilities and assets. And so my patients educated me. <laughs> right. And because of that, I spent actually a lot of time trying to understand all this. And this was in the late 80s, I guess. I, I arrived at, I guess, a set of questions that were really not what society was talking about. If you looked at the newspaper, what you would see was in the mid to late 80s, all these headlines about we can't afford all these old people. <laughs> it seemed to me that it didn't make a lot of sense to make that statement when we hadn't asked the question. And beyond that, it seemed to me from working with older adults so much that these were amazing people who brought assets of a successful life, immense learning, tremendous expertise, a lot of wisdom, and they had no place to put it. Aside from the usual but actually incredibly important roles which we count on but don't give any honor to. And that starts, of course, with grandparenting, which is the foundation, I think, of successful children. And it is the foundation of intergenerational strength and cohesion. The evidence that's been accrued since then shows in a million different ways how much grandparents matter to the success of their children and their grandchildren, both financially in terms of moral support they provide, in terms of the nurturance, in terms of backup, the social support, the babysitting, and really the council that flows across generations. And that doesn't matter what country or society you live in, that those roles are true. And of course, older adults also historically have played very important roles as the community watch and the community glue. And if you look, at, certainly in the U.S., at volunteering, older adults are the backbone of American volunteering in American communities. Mm-hmm. Unsung, but every church in the United States, every synagogue, every mosque, the mass of the volunteers who bring food to families where there's someone ill who make home visits. Those are the older adults in the congregation. But older adults in the U.S. are also the backbone of volunteering and a host of civil organizations, the people who staff 
polls on election day, but unrecognized and silent. So it seemed to me that not only were older adults a silent backbone of civil society, but in fact, they needed for their own health and well-being to contribute in additional ways, but we didn't have roles for that. And so I actually started to think that if we could build out the roles that older people want and need, that it might be a way to harness what they want and unite it with what society needs in novel ways that could really demonstrate the untapped assets we have through our longer lives. I decided in the late 80s I would try and see if I could build one model to exemplify that. And I designed and co-founded a program called Experience Corps, C-O-R-P-S, which actually is a scientifically designed, evidence-based senior volunteering model that at the time was quite innovative. It was designed to place older adults in public elementary schools in a model that brought very high impact for the kids to secure all the kids' success, to support the success of teachers, and is also a public health program hidden in the design to improve the health of the older adults who are volunteering. So designed to be a win-win-win. And to create evidence that, in fact, the assets of longer lives actually can be transformative for communities. I'm happy to say that Experience Corps itself is now in 23 U.S. cities and four countries. And the scientific evidence that we have developed of its impact is quite significant. Children do better in succeeding at school by a long shot. Teachers feel supported and enabled to teach better because children are doing better. And the health of the older adults is improved, including memory and the potential to prevent cognitive decline. So it's become very clear to me over the course of working in all these different dimensions that society is positioned to benefit from older adults in ways we never understood before, and that grandmothers are an anchor in that already, but we could even amplify the impact of grandmothers in ways they value. And I think the program that you have developed, the Grandmothers Movement, is a beautiful example of that. So I hope that gives you some beginning response to your question. It absolutely does. And it speaks to what I've come to learn. I see it in the grandmothers movement in Canada, now going global, that the vitality that the grandmothers already have and possess, the moment it's given an outlet, multiplies exponentially. But also that when grandmothers are able to come together or when out of necessity, as the African grandmothers have done because of HIV and AIDS, come together that there are untold benefits uh, and mm-hmm. health is certainly one of them and this sense of purpose and a sense of belonging as well, I think, which is the other side of how children become grounded in the continuity of those relationships, but also how the grandmothers themselves find their place and the place expands. Because it turns out that they can take up rather more space than the limited space that our societies afford them. When I was reading about the work that you've done, I was struck by the work where you, and I know that you were the one who first discovered this and elaborated upon it and investigated it, this whole notion of frailty as a clinical Mm -hmm. syndrome. And I know that my first instinct, because I work with grandmothers who are anything but frail, that in the, the, the lay sense of the term, frailty is not something we want to talk about or think about in 
relation to older women. I certainly know mm-hmm. that everyone I know would walk away from a conversation about frailty pretty quickly. But of course, that's not a medical meaning of what you were discovering. And I'd love to hear more about that. Frailty is described as being the raison d'etre, the reason for being of geriatric medicine, that it is at the heart of what affects people physiologically as they get older. I've spent a lot of my career trying to understand what it was that we were talking about, and I think we have made significant headway. I think it's useful to demystify it. It's very clear that our bodies change as we get older. They're changing actually every year we're alive. But certainly my older patients and people who participated in my research have always said to me, the thing that drives them the most crazy about getting older is declines in energy available to them. And again, I think my patients nailed it because what we now know is that frailty is exactly a biologic syndrome that we've shown is now diagnosable. And the evidence is driving more and more conclusively to suggest that it has to do with declines in energy production by ourselves. And the feeling of less energy as you get older seems to be very tied to that, and it affects the way your body works. Now, knowing that is the first step to making it less frightening, and also to begin to understand how to potentially prevent those declines in energy and reserves, and also what its flip side is. And I think we now have very clear evidence that staying physically active and exercising is the most compelling way to prevent being frail. On top of that, a nutritious diet and adequate protein is very critical, but it needs to be in addition to staying physically active to be most effective. So I just summarized 30 years of research. research. (laughs) One minute. (laughs) Bottom line is that this is a diagnosable condition that potentially is preventable to a good degree, probably not entirely, and down the road may be treatable. The other thing that I certainly have learned is that the flip side of this physiological, biological entity of frailty is the concept of resilience. What most older people manifest is resilience, right? It's the ability to bounce back, the the ability to draw on your reserves towards meaning and purpose, the drive to create a better future. All of those are, I believe, the elements of getting older that are so positive and compelling. You know, there are many forms of resilience. Some of them are the energy reserves we have within our body, but there are other kinds of resilience that are important to our well-being. And one of them is, of course, having social networks and supports that are meaningful, connectedness, not feeling lonely, because I think the evidence is very compelling that, that loneliness actually makes you sick and undermines resilience. And all of these, I think, point to big questions which your work is addressing and my work is addressing, which is now that we actually are living longer lives, how do we design a society that enables resilience and enables meaning and purpose and enables, honestly, collective action, which builds resilience and capability? Unless we actively design new social institutions we never imagined before, like what you're doing, like Experience Corps, things that give people the opportunity to enact the motivations of older age, which really are very future-oriented, which is to ensure that you're leaving the world a better place. 
to ensure that you have done everything you can to extend the hand to the next generations and lift them up. And those kinds of social institutions that we never needed before because people weren't living longer, I think are the key to societal resilience as well as the resilience of older people. It's so interesting to hear you speak because, of course, you make it sound so obvious. But the reality is, certainly in medicine, that for so long, uh, it has not been in sub-Saharan Africa around HIV and AIDS. There are still countries, and we're not collecting data on women over 50 who are HIV positive. Mm -hmm. And and so if you don't have the data, then you don't have uh, not just the medical response, but you don't have the programs, you don't have the policies, you don't have the investment in people's lives. And they're invisible. Right, completely invisible. invisible. That's right. And when you're not counted in the formal structures, then then the work you do becomes invisible. The role that you're playing, which in Mm -hmm. the case of the African grandmothers is the linchpin of survival for their families and communities, uh, is also, as you say, unsung, unheralded, unseen. Clearly, you're a most unusual doctor because you speak with such respect of your patients' insights and their realities. And I think that's most unusual. And in this case, tremendously important. It's so clear that you really saw them and then you really heard them and it led to a whole world of work. Well, one of the privileges of being a physician and a researcher is you get to learn from other people. But I'd like to comment on what you just said about mm-hmm. data collection. Just recognizing by a simple count of heads who exists and who's doing what. That's the most basic of transformations of existing institutions, societal institutions that we need in order to build a positive, successful society of longer lives. It's the most foundational transition we have to make. Just our accounting mechanisms are the most basic of that. Well, and it's so gendered too, right? I I remember when I was younger and my mother was writing about toxic shock syndrome and she was just tearing her hair out with frustration saying if they tested tampons as often as they tested condoms, (laughs) none of this would be happening. And I know in the work that I've been doing, the frustration is enormous that the world of older women is is so invisible. Right, exactly. And, you know, we demonstrated a number of years ago in Experience Corps that older adults, and in this case, it was primarily older women who signed up for Experience Corps. We demonstrated that we could train them, for example, to train children who had asthma to understand their disease. And in doing so, the older adults also better understood the disease. And theoretically, if they had asthma as well, they, as well as the children, would have better ability to manage their disease. So not only are people invisible, but we're not enabling them because we're not respecting what they need and what their immense capabilities are. It's a huge loss to... Yeah, everybody loses consistently. I'm now speaking to grandmothers all over the world about all sorts of different things that they're engaged in. There are many things that are unique to each of these women and what they're doing and how they arrived where they did. But there are striking commonalities. One of them is a deep respect and generosity around the contributions that others are making around them. Even though I'm interviewing each person as an individual, they're hugely aware and always give voice to the women with whom they're working. And how that collective action or that collectivity or that community that they've created is so important, but also so effective. And 
and the way that energy is created, frankly. Yeah, yeah. The other theme that comes up consistently with all of the grandmothers with whom I speak is, of course, the idea that they want to leave the world a better and more humane place for their grandchildren. Absolutely. I think older adults are actually the most future-oriented of all age groups in quite a selfless way. The Ericsons described this when they themselves got into their 80s, but they said, you know, one of the tasks of resolving what your life meant is to know that you're leaving the world better than you found it and that there are things that you have created that will live on beyond you. I think quietly to myself while I'm talking to grandmothers that I'm very fortunate to have these conversations because you start to see a path forward where the kind of vital and connected life that so many of the grandmothers I'm speaking to have developed for themselves later in life out of necessity Mm -hmm. so often Mm -hmm. is possible. Every concern of humankind is being addressed by these older women in whatever way they can and they bring so much life experience and so much capacity to it. It does give you hope in these moments when Mm -hmm. things seem so fractured. Absolutely. And I think people coming together out of these shared concerns and combined abilities Mm -hmm. redefines what being an older woman means, but it also, I think, redefines what a more optimistic scenario for our kids and grandkids in the world. I've written some about this, but I think the forward vision, future-orientation of older adults is critical to sustaining the planet. And actually, the moral authority that older adults have Mm -hmm. is combined could perhaps help us hedge our bets and diminish climate change, which has such impact already in harming our families and our future. The moral authority of older adults needs to be turned, I think, to many of these critical issues where our political systems seem to not be able to act, um, but the moral authority of minimizing harm that older adults could argue for might be able to, to override that. That is a beautiful note to end on. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Fried. It's been such a pleasure to hear from you. Well, it's my pleasure, and thank you for what you're doing. So important. Thanks for listening. I'm Ilana Landsberg-Lewis, your host of Grandmothers on the Move. If you want to find out more about me or the podcast, go to grandmothersonthemove.com and come back next week for another episode.